Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34 But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is, not, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, in communication, it is called secondary territory. Secondary territory is this phenomenon where uh, when you go to a familiar place, when uh, it could be a shopping place, you go to a familiar place, uh, perhaps it's a grocery store, you park in the same parking space every time if it's available. And uh, though your name isn't above the parking space, you think it's yours. And if someone is sitting there uh, in, the, in your space, you wonder why. It works in a classroom. If you're in college, you go in, and most college students don't have assigned seats. But the day one, whatever seat you sit in in your classroom, you'll sit in there most likely the same seat the next day and the next. And if you, I I teach college, and uh, we have a few folks. There's always two or three people who don't uh, have this uh, uh this fix on secondary uh, territory. They don't care. And they'll come in and and mix it up. And when they do, others walk in and go, how dare they sit in my seat? But what is so funny is if I had given them assigned seats on day one, they would have been so angry. How dare you tell me where I'm going to sit? And then I don't have to tell them where they're going to sit. They sit there every single day of class, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 9 a.m. It's called secondary, ter- secondary territory. And so it works in church, right? You've come here for however many years you've come. Uh, it could be six months. It could be for 15 years. And you sit where you sit. And you're going to come in. And you're going to sit where you sit. And by golly, nobody better get your seat. It's yours. I mean, we need to go back. Uh, if we're going to follow that, we'll get some big, long wooden pews. Put some little brass things on the end with names on it. You know, we could own these babies. And, uh, or back in the day, they sold them. You know, families bought seats, and that's where the family sat. If you go back in Spurgeon's time and then in our country. So what's the point? Well, the problem is that this idea of secondary territory had seeped into the Corinthian church, and I fear that it could very well seep into ours. We're 16 years in as a church, and at this point and at this uh, time in the history of our church, it's easy for secondary territory to affect. 
How do we see it? Let's look at this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Uh-oh, Paul's about to call him out because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So uh, he says, when you come together, when you meet together, it isn't good. It's not working out well. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, let me pause there for a moment, as a church. So let me say something just in case you might misunderstand this. This building is not the church. Amen? This building is not the church. This building is not the temple of God. I mean, if it were, we wouldn't have gone metal, okay? So this building is not the temple of God. This building is not the church. This, ha- this is a building where the church meets. All right, so if a fire were to sweep through here today and burn this place to the ground, the church that meets at 5182 U.S. 70 West would be alive and well. Amen? We would. There wouldn't be an issue. And so he says, when you come together as a church... They had no buildings in this day. They met in wealthy people's homes. And uh, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So let's deal with the caveat. Let's deal with the exception before we deal with the rule. Paul is saying he's he's, uh, not commending them for uh, having divisions, but he does commend them for having factions and that is interesting why is it okay to have factions and it isn't okay to have divisions because that's what Paul says here you can uh, try to explain this away there's no explaining it it's in black and white he says there are factions among you I commend you for that there are divisions among you I do not commend you for that why are factions okay and divisions not and here's the answer He says, the factions factions reveal among you who is genuine. All right, so there will come a time of testing. In the church, he is saying, and the testing reveals who is genuine. Who is the real deal? All right, so, so what he's saying is that there are heels worth dying on. There are things worth disagreeing on. What are they? There is one Christ There is one baptism. There is one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is one God the Father who sent his only son on the cross to die for sinners. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. All need Christ. Unless you come to God through Christ, you will not be born again. Amen, church? On that we agree. On that we agree. Is that exclusive? You bet your bottom dollar it is. It means that Muslims are wrong. It means that Mormons are wrong. It means that Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. It means anyone who denies the blood of Christ shed on the cross, who denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is wrong. That's what Paul is saying. And on those things, there will be factions, and that's okay. It is okay when those factions exist, when lines are drawn in the proverbial sand and you say there's right and wrong, there's gospel, there's truth, that is okay. But it isn't okay when within the camp of those who are called by Christ and saved by him that there are divisions. The crowning verse of this entire section is... uh, 
In verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that word proclaim occurs about 20 some times in the New Testament. And almost every single time it's translated, it's translated preach. So in just a little bit, when we come and, uh, or when we bring to you today the elements of the Lord's Supper, when we do that, uh, when you take those, you become preachers. You become preachers. In that moment, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to have a room full of preachers. And when you take the bread, and when you take the cup, you preach. You proclaim the Lord's death. You become a preacher. I saw this firsthand. We had a student live with us. Wendy and I were driving down the road the other day. When we got married almost 15 years ago, we never thought our house would become this place of, of, of refuge or whatever it is. But we've had 10 kids live with us in those 15 years who are not our own. And so one of those kids was Icy. Icy came to us from Senegal, Africa. Icy was an exchange student in a bad situation. I had just gotten home from Senegal on a mission trip when I received a phone call from Harold Grindstaff. And Harold said, we've got this student. Uh, she's in a tough situation. She needs to be moved. Uh, thought you might know someone. That's just a hook when you call us. That is it. That's just a good sales pitch because immediately we think the someone that someone may know is us. And so we thought about it. I'd just gotten back from Senegal and Icy moved in. I remember the night Icy came to our house. It was a Sunday evening. She showed up and when she did, she was scared to death. She was scared to death because as you could imagine, Icy was African. She was black, very, very black, and we're very white. And she had never, later she shared with us, been around white people. In the States, she had lived with black people only, and so here she comes into a house. You can't get more white than Go-Go, all right? (laughs) Everything about her is white. And so here she is, and she said, I was scared to death. I was absolutely scared to death. Not only was she black and we white, she was Muslim and we were Christian. And Icy would come to every single worship service here, every single one. But on first Wednesdays, especially when we take the Lord's Supper, Icy would look at us and she would watch us take a little bitty cup of juice and a little piece of bread. And the bread will not satisfy your hunger, nor the juice satisfy your thirst. This that we are about to do uh, to outsiders is goofy. It looks weird. It looks strange. You may be used to it, but unbelievers are not accustomed to this. Icy would watch that in wonder. Why? What is it about these people that they believe so in somebody that they would look so foolish as to drink a little tiny cup of juice, eat a little piece of bread? What is it about these people that they so believe in this person that they would look so foolish for him? This is foolish. Doing this looks foolish unless you've done it all your life. And part of the danger of having done it all your life is you forget how weird it is. It's strange. And so when you do it, you preach. You didn't know it, 
But for that, those nine months or so that Icy lived with us, you preached. Every time she saw you take the cup to your mouth, you preached a sermon. Every time she saw you take that little piece of bread, you preached. You proclaimed the Lord's death to her. You preached. That's what he says. So what is the point of all of this whole uh, diatribe that Paul has here in chapter 11? Practice what you preach. That's what he's saying. Practice what you preach to whom? First of all, to the least of these. He says, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They think they are. It isn't the Lord's Supper for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, he says with an exclamation point, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, so this is a lecture. Why is Paul lecturing? He's saying, practice what you preach to the least of these. Practice what you preach to the least of these. What's happening? Well, in the Corinthian house or in the Roman house of a wealthy person in that day, there were two distinct areas. One was called the atrium. The other was called the triclinium. The atrium was a large inner courtyard courtyard where they could host a meal for maybe 30 to 40 people max. The uh, triclinium was what we would call a dining room. And in the dining room, 10 to 15 people max. So here's, here was the custom of the day. The custom of the day was this. When you had guests over for dinner, you would have two different kinds of dinner. One would be you've hired your help or your hired help has prepared the complete dinner and they come and they have dinner. And when that happened, if, if, if it's a small dinner party, it happens in the triclinium. If it's a large dinner party, it happens in the atrium. But if you have this second kind of meal, this is what we would think of as potluck. But when you do a potluck meal, and you know, if we do one, you come and everybody gets something of yours and you get something of everybody else's. It didn't happen like that. You brought your meal for your family. Another brought their meal for their family. They ate their meal. You ate your meal. You just simply ate it together. All right, so you had a meal together, but it was yours. It was your basket, your food. And for, uh, you know, anybody who's OCD and a germaphobe, oh, great, right? And so you don't have to eat. I don't know what was in that kitchen, right? So you don't have to eat anybody else's food. You just bring your own and you eat yours. This is the kind of meals, the second kind, that they were having in the early Corinthian church. But here's what was happening Wealthy people come in with baskets full of sumptuous food. They've got steak, they've got lamb, they've got whatever they have. And here's what would happen in that day. When that happened in that day, the, the, the host of the meal, are you ready for this? Look at the basket, see the fare. Wealthy person, this is not in the church, this is just in general. Let's have them in the triclinium. So wealthy people ate in the triclinium, the not-so-wealthy people ate in the atrium. So you have your poorer people out in the atrium, you have your wealthy people in the triclinium. And guess what happened? 
Secondary territory, that's what that's called, right? I deserve to be in the triclinium. Look at my basket. Look at my food. And so when the church started at Corinth, guess what didn't stop that practice? It didn't stop. And so here they come in to have their meal, and they would eat this meal, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. What's happening? Look at here. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Uh, Look at verse 21. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So in the triclinium, you've got these people having these sumptuous feasts, delicious food, uh, loads of wine. And then you come out into this courtyard and marshaled together in the courtyard are the poor people with their meager baskets with not much food. Wow. Segregation 101 is what happened. It is unthinkable, isn't it, to think that we would do such a thing until we answer some questions. When is the last time someone who is not your skin color had dinner with you. When is the last time that you found somebody who in no way financially is at your level and you had them over smelly kids and all to your house or when is the last time this is an easy answer you made yourself uncomfortable enough on a Sunday morning to sit somewhere else Because you recognize this isn't for you. This could be for the person who has come in here desperate. You see, what I shared with uh, about 75 folks from the second service is, you may not realize, but we have now have, if you call uh, on the weekend or at night, we have a direct line here, extension 212. Once you hit it, it's our emergency line. It'll go straight to the staff member who's on call. And so we are on call 24-7. So when I'm on call, my phone lies uh, by my bed. It comes straight to me. So the last two weekends that I've been on call, I've gotten two different calls. And neither from Grace members, it is intended for Grace members, neither from Grace members, both from desperate alcoholics. Desperate. They both come in on a Saturday. They've come to the end of themselves. Both women, both crying out for help. Two Sundays ago, two weeks ago today, we had two women leave this church, our second service. One, her card was a cry for help. We were on the phone with her immediately. 
was a cry for help. She sat in the service along with other worshipers, and it was a cry for help. And when I got her on the phone, she was in her room, shades drawn, all by herself, alone. Trying to raise her nine-year-old grandson, and he got so bad that, they, that she had to send him away. And she said, I know no one up here. I said, do you know anyone in our church? She said, that nice lady who read scripture today has been so sweet to me, Debbie Moore. I said, uh, would you mind if Debbie gave you a call? No, I would not, she said. So we got the information to Debbie who followed up with her. Second lady that uh, emailed us that afternoon, she said, and, you know, we keep it real in here, uh, but she said, uh, my husband and I have now attended twice. Uh, No one has spoken to us both times. I didn't think I would ever get him to church, uh, but he came. I love what's happening there. I love this church. We want to be a part. Is there something we're missing? Is there a group we need to go to uh, to get to know somebody? What do we need to do? So that Sunday after that email came in that Sunday afternoon, that Sunday afternoon I sent an email back. By Wednesday, that woman was in, uh, was sitting in one of our offices. Her husband, who had moved her here from states away, decided to up and leave her, abandon her with a six-year-old autistic child. And with tears streaming down her face, she said, I know no one here. No one. The next morning at 9 a.m., Pat Piercy was sitting in here face-to-face with this woman, engaging with her. See, here's the reality. This is why I ask you to move. You're not that kind of people. But guess what we've done? You have secondary territory, and you know everybody who sits around you. You do. You know them. So if there are new people here you don't know and you don't speak or you speak to everybody who's around you because that's who sits around you every Sunday. And I'm not trying to chide you. It's not because you have a bad heart. For the Corinthians, it was a habit. And they carried it over into worship. And so what Paul says to do here, he says, practice what you preach to the least of these. And then he says, uh, because we need to move on because this is awful. Uh, Practice what you preach about the greatest of these. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Practice what you preach about the greatest of these. Here's what doesn't make sense. It made no sense for the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the guy who created it all to walk into that room. And and one of those disciples should have gotten down and washed the dirty feet of the rest, but they refused to. So Jesus gets a towel, he gets a basin, and he washes their feet. And then he takes bread from the meal. Nothing fancy, just bread from the meal. He breaks it. How in the world, Jesus, how in the world do you give thanks for bread that's going to symbolize your broken body how do you do that 
How do you take bread and break it and say, this is my body. God, thank you for this bread. Father, thank you for this bread, which symbolizes my broken body. Of all things, I wouldn't have thanked him at that moment for that bread. That bread would have been foreboding. That bread would have broken my heart. I will be ripped to shreds and just like this bread is about to. And of all people to serve it to, that group, that group, Matthew, the tax collector, the turncoat, the cheat, these, uh, these rough fishermen who, who, there's, I mean, what value do these guys have? What value do they have? What do they bring to the table? They all ran, Jesus. You knew they were going to run. How in the world do you take that bread, break it, and thank God and say, this is for you? And that's what he did. And every time we take it, we preach Crucified, broken, servant, king who served others. Every time. He didn't stop there. He took some wine that was going around the table. And he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He took wine And he was saying to them, John would be the only one who'd make it to the cross. But John, when you get to the cross and you see the blood streaming down my face, remember this taste in your mouth. When you see the crown of thorns come just down over my head, when you watch them pull the beard from my face, could you remember this little taste of wine? This is a new covenant. There was an old one. I'm making a new covenant. And a covenant is a one-way lopsided agreement between God and us that he will never, ever step out on us. Wow. There's no better way to show somebody you'll never step out on them than to take a crown of thorns, take a spear, thrust through the side. Every time today when you taste this, blood flowing down. That's what he said. He said, practice what you preach to the least of these. Practice what you preach about the greatest of these. Jesus is the greatest, amen? There's no greater, no greater person who ever lived on the face of the earth. He's the greatest. And then... Practice what you preach to all of these. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Do you remember when you were in school and you were studying literature and you talked about double entendre? Anybody remember that? Double entendre. What does it mean? It means one word with two meanings in the same sentence, all right? Double entendre, one word with two meanings in the same sentence. Here, when Jesus says this, we have double entendre. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body, which body? The body of Christ or the other body of Christ? And the answer is yes. The body, the body and the blood of Christ. If you eat and drink this and you never think about the cross, you, you're, 
you're failing. You, you make yourself guilty. This is about the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus spilled for you. But then the other meaning is the body of Christ, the church. If you eat and drink of this and don't think about people around you, you're guilty. You're guilty concerning this body of Jesus and you're guilty concerning this body of Jesus. So Jerry, how do you know? Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Did God take that seriously, that they were uh, looking down on the, ha- the, the have-nots? Yes, he did, so much so that he brought judgment into the church at Corinth, resulting in illness and death because of their class, class uh, uh, status that they invoked in the triclinium and in the atrium. But there's grace, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He says, you can fix it. Just judge yourself, just quit doing it. How about next time you gather as a church, how about you invite those with the meager baskets uh, into the triclinium with those with the full baskets? How about the rich and the poor mix and the black and the white mix and the Hispanics? In the second service, Hispanics will help serve this table. Amen? How how about we do that? How, How about all of a sudden, all of these distinctions just fade away? And the church is the church regardless of how much education or how little education you have. How about that happens? That's what he's saying. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things, I will give directions when I come. I love that. Wait for one another. So deacons, if you'll come while I finish, and all of you who are helping serve, just come and stand in front of your sections. We're bringing it to you today. We're serving you. We just want to serve you today. My wife is the ultimate hostess. She loves to have people in her home, and one of the reasons that uh, she's so good is that she relaxes. She just relaxes. Like, have you ever gone to eat with somebody, and while you're finishing eating, they're cleaning it up after you while you're eating, and you think, oh. You know, I don't want to mess anything up. That's what you're thinking. That's what you're thinking. And so, um, Arlen, you can turn around and face folks if you want. There we go. Um, And go ahead and pass out the bread to the folks. That's fine. So they'll be passing the bread. Just hold on to it. As they are passing the bread, there's something you may have noticed about the table up here. I don't want to grab it. I want to show it to you. Here it is. This is an offering basket from Senegal, Africa. Um, I looked up Senegal this morning. I was curious. We had a meeting this week. We're planning a trip there. And uh, if you've never seen this book right here called Operation World, uh, you ought to check it out. So I looked up Senegal this week. And, uh, or this morning, and here's what I discovered. 
there are uh, 13 million people who live in Senegal, Africa. Almost half of them live in urban areas. Their income per person per year is $1,066. This is, this is what they make in a year, $1,066 per person. I do not say that to make you feel guilty um, at all. That, that's ineffective. I say that to remind us that we are rich, aren't we? All of us, we're rich. Um, there are 182 countries listed in this, uh, in this book, and uh, Senegal is 166 out of 182 in all of the poverty indexes. 166 out of 182. Only 16 countries worse off than Senegal, Africa. Um, David Platt tells the story in his book that I'm reading right now called Counterculture. Platt lived in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina came through and he lost his home along with many, many people. Platt said that Shortly after, he went on a mission trip to China. And when he went on this mission trip to China, what happened, Platt said, is that uh, they had heard about Hurricane Katrina. He said these were very impoverished Christians who were at risk of losing their family, their job, and their lives for the gospel. He said, I was there probably for about two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, this is shortly after Katrina, the leader of that church group walked up to me and handed me this little envelope. And I said, what is that? He said, we have taken up an offering. Would you take it back to New Orleans and use it? He said, uh, he said I, I, don't, I don't think I can take this. They said, no, no, we insist. We insist. And he said, we went back and forth. And finally, they looked at me and said, please don't deprive us of the joy of helping. He said, I took it so humble by it, opened it. It wasn't enough to make any difference at all. It wasn't enough to make any difference at all. But in God's eyes, it was huge, right? The body of Christ that we're about to eat, that tiny little piece, isn't enough in man's eyes to make any difference. But is there anybody in the room this morning who could testify to the difference Jesus has made in your life? He's made all the difference 
in the world. Amen? So take your piece of bread. I want you to lift it up. Just, just look around. All right, now, here's what you'll do that we don't normally do. Look around, and if you don't know somebody around you, introduce yourself to them. Talk. All right, talk. It's okay. Now, just look at somebody beside you, and with a smile of gratitude on your face, just look at them and say, the body of Christ. Just look at somebody and say, the body of Christ. Let's take, let's take the bread together. Now, if you'll distribute the juice as they are, I'll reserve this to the end. Remember the woman I talked about who sent us the email? She's not in this service, but she sent us uh, the email, and when she did, we responded, and Pat Piercy is wonderful, just reached out. Well, she was here Sunday, second service, sat right between where Evelyn and Janet are sitting, that seat right there. On Wednesday, or Tuesday, rather, I had lunch with Josh Bingham. I think it was Tuesday. I had lunch with Josh Bingham at Holly's. And we fell in line behind her. I spoke to her. She spoke back. She shared a little more of kind of the uh, evolving details of her story. We got our food. She got her food. She sat and ate. Josh and I ate, and we were getting ready to, uh, uh, we were still talking, and she was getting ready to leave. She's now essentially a single mom, and she walked over to Josh on the way out, and she had some money in her hand, and she said, I know this isn't much, but I heard what you shared Sunday. And I like what you're doing. Could you use this in your mission work? And I sat there and thought, this is the kingdom, amen? This is how it works. The least of these, please hear me at grace. Whatever you have is great. This is how it works. This is the beauty of the body, the beauty of the blood. You see, because in no other religion, would they celebrate 
a crucified Christ. Say, what do you mean? In Jesus' day, the cross is equivalent to our electric chair. How in the world would you celebrate somebody who died in an electric chair? We do. We do. That makes this almost repulsive, doesn't it? Do you see why Paul was so angry? How is it that you could take a Jesus who was so high and became so low, who was so great and became so small, who was so strong and became so weak, and turn this around? And so what we're going to do, would you lift this up? Would you look around the room? Do you believe in this Christ church? Do you believe? Do you believe? Let me hear you. Do you believe? Let's take this cup together and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.